The Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles or letters in the New Testament. That's almost half of the entire New Testament. But many consider his letter to the Romans to be his magnum opus, his greatest work and theological achievement. As we will see in a new series here on Groundwork, Paul very systematically moves through various areas of salvation theology, and he does it so methodically that sometimes you forget this was actually a letter written to people, not a kind of catechism. But it is a letter written to people whom Paul loved. Today on Groundwork, we see where Paul goes first in the letter to the Romans, so stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. Uh, Daryl, this is now the first episode in a planned six-part series on the 16-chapter Letter to the Christians Living in Rome. And of course, there is so much in Romans that we could do a 20-part series, and we still wouldn't cover everything. But we're going to try to do what we can to move through the big movements of this letter to catch the rich theology and, and the great good gospel news that, that Paul wants to convey here. So Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, and this letter here is one of the shining examples of people who have used this one as a teaching tool. I know I've had a study on the book of Romans when I went to Bible school, and the churches and people in small groups have taken this letter as a, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to understand about the gospel, and Paul lays it out clearly, and I wish we could do every single point of it, but I would advise people to read the book in its entirety to get the full context, but definitely we're going to hit some points today. And Paul wrote letters of various lengths. There's some very, very short ones like to Philemon and some sort of semi-short ones to like uh, Timothy. Uh, but then he's got some longer ones. First Corinthians, I think, may be the longest. Um, uh, that also has 16 chapters. Uh, Romans has 16 chapters. So this is definitely one of the biggest ones. And as you just said, it's packed. But before we dive in, today we're going to be looking at Romans 1 through 3, the first three chapters. But before we dive in, let's uh, just step back and look at a couple big things. First, it's abundantly clear that Paul knows a lot of Christians who are living in Rome. In fact, in the final chapter of Romans, he's going to list a long list of people by name, people he knows and loves. But it's also clear that when Paul wrote this letter, he had not visited Rome yet. He wanted to, uh, and he says at the beginning of Romans that he had had multiple plans to travel to Rome, and his plans got changed every single time. The book of Acts tells us Paul did get to Rome eventually after surviving a shipwreck that landed him temporarily on the island of Malta. But here are just the last two verses from Acts 28, the last chapter, beginning at verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it literally abruptly ends there in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Like you don't get a the end, you don't get an epilogue. Uh, We don't hear much about Paul after that. We do know Paul had intentions to get as far as Spain, but he never made it to Spain. And as a matter of fact, after that verse in Acts chapter 28, he is going to lose his life not much longer after that. He is going to lose his life. Uh, not long, we think, that not long after that two-year period Luke mentioned there at the end of Acts 28, the Romans hauled Paul out of the city one day uh, and lopped off his head. Uh, That is the story of his martyrdom. So the city Paul so longed to visit also, it turns out, became the last place where he preached the good news of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. So that's just sort of an overview of Paul's relationship. And then next, uh, Daryl, well, let's think about uh, the the structure of Romans. So the book of Romans in and of itself, I think that it's 
fair to say that the Heidelberg Catechism had taken this three-part outline mm. from this book, you know, sin, salvation, service. And the human problem of sin is definitely dealt with in the first three chapters, and that's what we're going to deal with in this episode. Sins first, but then the second, Paul is going to reveal what God did to address that problem. He saved us by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then in the third part of Romans, uh, that'll be the end of this series, Paul returns to our response to this great salvation, namely that we live lives of, of dedicated service. We, we, we are grateful for what God did in Jesus, and we show our gratitude through Christian living. But today, as I said, we're going to look at Romans 1 through 3, and this is where Paul's going to talk about the bad news of sin. And as we listen to this, Daryl, you know, uh, the basic question all of us should have is, why do we need the gospel? Why is the gospel so relevant to my life? Well, Paul's going to talk about that. But first, listen to this wonderful summary of the gospel in Romans 1, 14 to 17, where Paul writes, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That's why I am so eager to preach the gospel to also you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul makes it clear in this verse why we need the gospel. It's the power of salvation for those who believe, and we need to be saved from something. And that's what Paul wants to talk about. What is it that we need to be saved from? What is this sin problem? And he begins to tell us what that is in this chapter. The writer Frederick Buechner once said that if the gospel preaches a sheltering word, it is received the most eagerly by people who have already figured out, hey, somebody blew the roof off my house. <laughs> I need a shelter because the roof was blown off my house. Paul here is going to blow the roof off our house, and he does it beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Nothing subtle about that. Humanity, Paul says, is without excuse. If you claim that you you had no way to know that there's a good and holy God that exists somewhere No, you do know that. Everybody knows that, Paul says. Instead, we suppressed the truth. It's a very, very famous line from Romans 1.18. We suppressed the truth. We locked the truth up in chains. We stuffed the truth into a dark closet in our hearts and pretended it just didn't even exist in our everyday lives. We fancied ourselves as being mature, wise people, but no, we were fools. And, you know, everybody has this deep down desire to worship something. Right. And Paul says, yeah, and that's supposed to be directed to God. And instead, you directed it to, 
you know, people or to golden statues or you, you worshipped trees or you worshipped cats or you thought a cat was your god, we're really bad off. <laughs> we're quite thoroughly mired in sin is the point. You know, Psalm 19 alludes to this. The heavens declare mm-hmm. the glory of God. Day and night they pour forth speech. So you can't act like you didn't see that. You didn't know that. Every time you open your eyes, it's right there yeah. in plain truth. And Paul is going to continue to talk about what this means even deeper when we go into the next segment. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose, along with Daryl Delaney, and you are listening to Groundwork in this first program of a six-part series on the Book of Romans. And we're covering chapters 1, 2, and 3 in this program. And as we ended the previous segment and got to the end of chapter 1, we got to what the reformer John Calvin called total depravity. We, we are stuck, Paul says. We are mired in sin. And Paul's going to kind of double down on that now as we move into Romans 2. When we look at how Paul begins the letter, you can't tell he's going to go this way Mm. because it's so warm. It's so welcoming. And he does this a lot where he does a warm greeting in all of his books except Galatians where he was literally frustrated and mm-hmm. he got right to it. But he starts this letter very warm. If you want to read it, it picks up at verse 8. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God, God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. A warm, effusive uh, greeting. And that's why it is rather bracing. Um, at the end of chapter one, we just saw it was kind of a general indictment of humanity. Yeah. Right? I mean, just everybody's without excuse, right? But now as we move into chapter two, Paul's going to kind of go after something that's very specific, apparently, to Rome. Now, Rome was a Gentile city, non-Jewish for the most part, but there were Jews who had come to know Jesus also in the Roman church. And so Paul's going to talk to both uh, Jews and non-Jews in what's to come. Uh, he kind of starts with his fellow Jews, and it looks like he's targeting something uh, that's got him really upset. He, he writes this in chapter 2, "'You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things.'" Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
we actually are reminded of the time when Moses brought the law to the Israelites. And because they were already messing it up, they were having a party, they had a golden calf. Moses broke those. God was like, no, you can't do that because now they don't know what sin is. But now they have an opportunity to learn through the law what sin is, but that law was never going to bring them righteousness. And that was like a point of confusion all along. The law was given for what you just said, you know, well, a couple different things, but one is to reveal sin. The other is to reveal a better way to live, right? I mean, so a conviction, uh, but also the blueprint for creation. The law is like the owner's manual for creation. You know, yeah. it tells you how to how things go best. God wants us to live inside the, the boundary lines that he created because that's where we can flourish. Step outside of that, people get hurt. But eventually, and it actually didn't take long, people started to think that the law was given as the way to salvation. Like if we keep this perfectly— then we'll get saved. Then God punches our entry ticket to heaven that we earn on our own. And Paul's going to make um, the, the very big point in this part of Romans, that was never what the law was supposed to do. You were never supposed to think, oh, if I just do this, I can save myself. Nope, that wasn't the law's function. The law was never designed to make you have your own righteousness. Mm. There will be no one in heaven saying, yep, I checked every one of them, and now I'm here because of my own ability. Because can we even do things perfectly? We kind of find out the hard way that we don't. And actually, in Hebrews chapter 10, it refers to this, that the law was given, but it wasn't designed to cleanse the consciousness of the believer. It wasn't designed to remove the sin guilt. Only Jesus Christ can do that through grace by faith. And I, that's a spoiler because that's where we're headed. It's like the rich young man who comes to Jesus, you know, hey, I kept all the law, so ta-da, what do I lack? And Jesus says, well, one more thing. And Jesus will always be able to say one more thing <laughs> right. to each of us, no matter how good we've lived. And it's not going to be the same thing for you as it is for me, and it was something different for the rich young man. That wasn't what the law was supposed to do. So that's a big point. But specifically here in Romans 2, what seems to upset Paul is people who— act all highfalutin snooty, and they judge other people. And then Paul says, but you're doing it too. So who are you to talk? You know, who are you to talk? You look good on the outside, but that doesn't earn any points with God when in your heart you've got rage and bitterness and pride and envy. This is how uh, the next part that he says in verse 28 of chapter 2, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by a written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul is making this point that just because you followed this law to a T, if your heart isn't in it and you mm -hmm. end up actually doing the same things, you're a hypocrite. And yep. that's not what you're supposed to do. And Jesus actually had rebuked the Pharisees for this in his day. Mm -hmm. He called them whitewashed tombs because they looked great on the outside, but their hearts were dirty. And so God is trying to help us understand that it's not going to be about you, number one, following this law to a T, and number two, judging others who you think is not following the law to the letter T. It's about you being humble and realizing that we're all unrighteous under sin, which is where Paul is headed. 
And the specifics of this we don't know, as we've pointed out so often here on Groundwork, Daryl, whenever we read the letters of the New Testament, we're reading somebody else's mail. You know, it's sort of like uh, after your grandma died, uh, you find some letters that she and her sister had exchanged. So letters between your grandma and your aunt. And so you pick one of those letters up out of a shoebox in the attic after grandma dies, and her sister had written her a letter saying that she shares grandma's concerns about Phil. Oh, and by the way, thanks for that great recipe you sent. Okay. So that's the letter from your aunt to your grandma. But just reading that much doesn't tell you who Phil was, what was concerning about him, or whether the recipe was for a cherry tart or a pot roast, right? You have to do some digging to figure that out. So what exactly was going on that these people were being only outwardly pious, but inwardly not so much? We're not quite sure. But clearly Paul had gotten wind of some bad stuff going on. So sometimes we won't have the specific context of the things that are happening that Paul is addressing. Like in Corinthians, he says, about those things you wrote me about, we'll never know what those things were. But what the Holy Spirit has done in his uh, wisdom is given us the essence of what was important so that we can live from it and learn from it. Like what he's teaching us in Romans 2. So not only does he continue to lay into his fellow Jews, Mm -hmm. he feels he has the ability to speak into that because he is a Jew and he continues to talk about the practices that they do in the middle of chapter two, where he says, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he understands Mm -hmm. that the original plan for God's people was for them to be cross-cultural missionaries and to allow God's truth to come to them. But they have not held that responsibility of being a light and witness they're called to, and Paul's calling them out for it. And is this really happening? Were people literally stealing, committing adultery left and right, robbing temples? Or is this a little hyperbole, a little exaggeration, you know, sort of like Jesus saying, hey, if you got a lodgepole pine tree sticking out of your eye, what are you doing picking sawdust out of somebody else's eye? Paul may be going to rhetorical extremes here, but the point is clear enough. God doesn't want us to look good on the outside. We have to be good on the inside. God wants us to be transformed, and there's only one way that's going to happen, and it's not by our trying to keep the law, and Paul's going to get around to that in Romans 3, so stay tuned. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, in this first episode on the letter to the Romans, we're in the bad news section. But as we turn the corner now to chapter 3, Paul first doubles down a bit on everything that we just saw. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, very famous verse that some of us know well, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And, you know, Daryl, you get the feeling that at this point uh, in Romans, Paul wants the reader to say, well, good grief. Is there any hope? (laughs) Uh, I'm getting desperate here. 
So I think Paul is using his own argument because in chapter one, he says that all mouths should be stopped and all people mm-hmm. are held accountable to a holy God and without excuse. He's drilling this point down so that we can actually come to the realization that, oh, yeah, we're guilty. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have no excuse. What are we going to do? And then he turns the corner to the good news. If you don't realize the bad news is bad, the good news won't be good. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Chapter 321, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So... I know that we're going to get into the next episode where we talk about this beautiful doctrine called justification by faith and yep. faith alone. Um, and Paul is laying the foundation for that. You want to stay tuned for that next episode. But suffice it to say, in this episode, Paul is showing us that now that we understand that the law can't save us, even if we followed it to the letter, and that even though we try to follow it to the letter, our hearts still need addressing. He's showing us here that there is a way for that to happen. And this is the place where it gets real practical, Scott. Indeed. Why is the gospel relevant to my life? Why do I need the gospel? Well, Paul's made that pretty clear now. Two takeaways for this. First, a first observation is that um, these first three chapters in Romans touch on something that is touchy. You know, Daryl, in in more recent times, like while you and I were in in college and seminary in the 80s and 90s, there was this seeker-sensitive movement in American churches. And one of the hallmarks of that was the idea that, you know, talking about sin is a downer. It's a turnoff. It's not seeker-friendly. And so even some churches that had traditionally had in their Sunday order of worship something called confession and assurance of pardon, they started to drop it. Uh, and they dropped, you know, sin talk uh, and, you know, sermons maybe shifted uh, to, to be a little bit more motivational speech or practical sermons because, you know, you just got to stay away from sin. Well, Daryl, I think we could admit that there have been preachers and others in the history of the church who have been heavy handed, harsh with sin. And maybe that's an extreme. But the solution can't be to go to the other extreme and we just delete sin talk altogether. We can't do that. So what we've seen in when we study these things is that when they stop talking about sin and the problem of sin and how that's part of our lives and we need repentance and salvation and deliverance, they replaced it with, oh, this is life enhancement. Oh, mm-hmm. your life is better. God's have a, God has a plan for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to help you. He wants to make you prosper. Then prosperity gospel hijacks that. And now we got something that's moving us further and further away from the truth of the gospel. But Paul knows this, and this is actually the I think it's a secret weapon. It shouldn't be secret, but it's a secret weapon. But we need to get back to understanding the importance of the power of the law so that we know that we need salvation. And once we realize that, then we can get the good news that we need. Exactly. Barbara Brown Taylor had a book some years ago titled Speaking of Sin. And one of the chapters in that book had a very provocative title, Sin is Our Only Hope. Now, we don't usually put sin and hope in the same sentence, but her point was that we have to know our sin because that then gives us eagerness to open the floodgates of the grace that alone can deal with it. It's just a very, very important first thing to acknowledge so that the good news of the gospel is even better, right? We're even happier to get it. 
And then finally, in closing, a second thing to note is that if naming our sin makes us throw ourselves on God's mercy, then our great relief at being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that is the greatest gratitude generator in the world. I mean, when you really understand how bad off you were, and when you really understand the miracle of God coming to get you anyway, you're thankful. And so it's really a beautiful testimony for us if we just look back at our life and look back at what we used to do and how we used Mm. to behave. And then when we see the guy who loves us so much intervene into that situation, even though he knows at that moment we don't want to hear it, we don't want to have anything to do with it, when he does that and shows us the full extent of his love anyway, the proper response to that is gratitude. When I found out how much God loved me, it just broke me and brought me to tears because I'm like, man, he just went through all of that for me. He went through all of that for us. So why wouldn't you want to serve a God like that? Exactly. Ironically, it brings us back to the law. Paul has been making clear here, the law was never meant to save you. The law had two main functions. One, to restrain sin, check it. The second was to name sin and lead you to repentance. But in the Reformed tradition, we've come to have a third use of the law, and that is that it's the blueprint for that grateful life you were just talking about. It's a blueprint for discipleship. So the law brings us to our knees in repentance, but once God lifts us off our knees, then the law becomes like the roadmap. So uncomfortable things here in Romans 1 through 3, but they lead us to the gospel. They lead us back to Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose. We hope you'll join us again next time as we study what Paul teaches in Romans chapters 4 through 7. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.